Hello, gentle listener, and welcome to Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. I am your host, Michael Lilienthal, and this is my guest, Ethan Bartlett. Hello, I'm Michael's guest, Ethan Bartlett. That's him. That's him over there. Uh, Ethan, how are you feeling today? Uh, Dees. Dees? Yeah. Dees? Okay. All right. Do you understand your feelings? Oh, absolutely not. No. Um, Okay. Sometimes I have feelings about my feelings, and then my wife yells at me to not do that. Oh, yeah. Because what my wife says... I get that. And this is a pretty weird one, but what my wife says is, like, if I'm feeling sad... It doesn't actually help anything to be angry that I'm feeling sad. <laughs> so then what I am is angry at her for pointing that out. Well, that's a much more manageable emotion. Right, yeah, exactly. So that she's helped you in that I hope way. you don't think that this has anything to do with like the book that we're about to no. talk about. You're just kind of checking in, right? I just wanted to know. I'm genuinely, <laughs> genuinely interested in, in, in your your mental and emotional well being. Well, I always say um, that it's uh, more believable when someone says something like that if they aren't also laughing at the same time. <laughs> but I- my my laughter is just a, a a sign of my my mirth. And joy on the subject of you, Ethan. That's. I was gonna say, uh, <laughs> laughter generally is a sign of mirth. Yes, so I'm glad we're <laughs> right. Well, let's let's add some some mirth to this mirth uh, with uh, the scotch that we are drinking for this episode. Um, Ethan, I believe you have the same bottle I do. It is the. Shield Day, Shield Day, Shield I guess I I'm always sure say exactly. Shield Dag, but I don't know. Shield Dag. I don't know if they. Your your guess is as good as mine. Literally, I don't know if that yep. G should yep. be in there or not. Shield Dag just feels nice to say. Shield Dag. Um, yeah, yeah, but it's solid. And... Yeah. yeah. For a show where anyway. we've been so, so, yeah, okay. drinking scotch for six years or whatever. We still know so little about think, how to pronounce it. Like, you'd think we'd do any research about it ever. One of these days, we'll, <laughs> we'll figure that out. But yes, it's the Shield Egg Single Malt Scotch Whiskey, Speyside, age 12 years. Um, so, it's a nice, uh, nice blue yeah. canister. Um, before we uh, begin drinking this scotch ethan uh we are a very rules-based podcast so would you uh summon your wife in here to read us the rules that will allow us to enjoy this wife i summon thee rule one once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink the scotch must not be mentioned at any time if anyone mentions it they lose rule two no one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule 3. Ethan must never say the phrase, first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule 4. Michael must never say the words, vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. 
Rule 5. If anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. Rule number 6. The wives are entitled to one glass of scotch or some equivalent beverage. Rule number 7. If four scotch-centric episodes pass with no losses, then everyone loses. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle Gentle listener. listener. Yikes! Oh, uh, okay, she's... she's... (laughs) She saw that, uh, bright, shining light beam her in. Yeah, I, I usually don't summon her, I usually just ask her to come in, and I think I am going to observe that distinction from now on. That was a scary... You know, like how angels in the Bible... Everyone thinks of them as these, like, fluffy <laughs> creatures, but when they show up, the first thing they have to say is, like, don't be afraid. Right, right. Okay, my, uh, my bottle is fighting me here. I gotta huh. finagle it. There we go. I think I think I got it. Yep, all right. I was tempted to, like, try to hastily pour and clink glasses just ahead of you, just to be a butt. Um, just to be a butt. But then I was like, wait, then there will be a situation where I the rules are in force for me and not for Michael. And that felt like <laughs> handing you way too much power. Oh my goodness, so much. So. So much. So much power, I wouldn't even know what to do with that. <laughs> so. Well, with that, Ethan... Slancha. Brust. What an obedient man I am. <laughs> I have some jokes about that, but this is a family podcast. <laughs> and also, yes. where, where my head was going with certain of them would violate... Rule two, I think. Yep. Sure. What's rule two, Ethan? Just refresh our listeners. Uh, they can they can run the thing back like <laughs> thirty seconds or whatever. Just to mm-hmm. good mm-hmm. effort. Yes, I know. Thank you. Wow, it wasn't, but uh, I appreciate that. <laughs> so no, it almost was because I was like good effort, and then. The phrase that my brain told me to say next would have been a violation of rule one. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shoot. And then I feel like I'm um, on dangerous ground even naming the rules. So please, let's move on to whatever thing you were going to say. Well, what I was going to say, Ethan, is uh, more to the subject of our, our podcast. As brevity is the soul uh, of wit, I shall be brief. Books. I shall be brief. Uh, yes. <laughs> so we are going to be discussing the book, Ethan, uh, Wait, Nobody's Angel by Thomas McQueen. <laughs> the book, Ethan. <laughs> Sorry, I was also going to interrupt you to say... Scary book. To ask if uh, Polonius should be the, like, um, 
like the bobblehead figure that is the mascot of our podcast. Oh my goodness, bobblehead Polonius is is our mascot. Yes. <laughs> I need one. I need to find out if such a thing exists, and I need it. Bobblehead Polonius. It's just fun to say. That's that's like that's my band name. <laughs> That'd be a great band name. <laughs> right, bobblehead Polonius. <laughs> um. Oh man. Okay. No, on to this subject, though. We're talking about Nobody's Angel by Thomas McGuane. Yes. Um, and my my copy lost its cover. It, it's broken apart. I don't know how your binding is. <laughs> uh, mine? It yeah. either did or almost has. Let's see. No, we're still... We're still, like, we got one... The front crease um, glue <laughs> is it. still hanging on. So I'm like one good accidental like, you know, mm-hmm. uh, tug away from being in the same situation. I will also say I had a situation come up because um, I think you and I have the exact same. Yeah, it should like, be the 1981 printing edition. essentially. Yeah, um, which I suspect is probably the last, uh, uh, the last print run of this. Um, I could be wrong about that. It might be some sort of Gosh. niche classic or secret classic or something. But um, anyway, our our copies oh, look oh, identical. Is it gone? Oh, oh wow! Is it gone? Oh, mine is actively <laughs> coming off. I believe. Yep, right. yep, that's it. Yep. Here we go. Uh, no, what I was going to talk about is the binding actually, because I had an experience where I was reading this book. I had just. I'd been on a walk or something. Um, no, no, no. Okay, I'd been eating a cookie or something. Um, some kind of slightly crumbly thing. And I was leaned back in my recliner, reading this book, <laughs> and I looked down out of the corner of my eye, or whatever, and saw that there were some, oh, no. like, crumbs that I had missed on my chest. So I just, like, they were annoying me, so, like, just for no reason. So I stood up and brushed them off quick. Um... And then, like, looked down, visually verified that they were gone, sat back down, looked down a few <laughs> paragraphs later to see that there were crumbs again. The book was gaslighting and I was like, you. what is happening? Um, <laughs> it was, because it took me a few more sort of recursions of the cycle to figure out that the binding the on this book, I think it was probably yep. the glue used to bind it, had become. Yeah, had become very brittle and was mm-hmm. disintegrating and leaking onto my shirt. And after right. that, it was okay. It didn't bother me anymore because I knew what it was. But like, it was, it was perturbing for a second there. No, I, absolutely. And like, so I, I've looked a little bit more into Thomas McGuane. Um, this this is yeah. this is my the first time I'd ever heard of him. Um, sure. He's still living. Uh, has several novels, and apparently there's a little bit of scholarship about him as an author. Um, okay. That uh, at, he he has like um, clarified periods of writing, periods of his novels um, that are are marked in in the scholarship, and so um, this sure. book, Nobody's Angel, is the first of his post Panama period <laughs> okay um and panama i think is the title of a a novel um that he wrote a few years prior to this one um okay and it's in the very brief 
very surface level Wikipedia-esque research I did on this man. Um, Panama is his most um, autobiographical novel. And so what that tells me is that, so like he wrote these different novels, had these different story ideas and such, and then like broke out and wrote this autobiographical experience and then Hmm. went into this... um, uh, series, it, not not series exactly, but uh, the that starts with nobody's angel sequence sequence of books. Yes, that's much better. Um, and uh, apparently, uh, much of it comes in uh, or it takes place in the town of Dead Rock or around Dead Rock, where the the setting uh, of this okay. book is. So um, that that comes out here. So what, what's what's interesting to me is. Knowing that this this man is is still living, this author is still living, uh, and there is this scholarship around him that that seems interested in at least examining the various periods of his um, writing and production, um, that this is the only edition of the book I could find anywhere, and yeah. it's out of print and the binding is falling apart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you know if. As you say, there's sort of only a little bit of scholarship around him. Sometimes yeah. that's like the seed that later germinates into more scholarship. And then once that happens, that's when you tend to get like a publisher like Penguin or, mm, or mm-hmm. um, Everyman or, or some of those publishers or lines, not necessarily whole publishers, but yeah, lines or um, imprints of, of bigger publishers that specifically reprint sort of classics including modern classics so mm-hmm. you know it could be if there is any momentum to this nascent scholarship to him that like we may in the next few years start to see you know like the um mm-hmm. i don't know what the is it just penguin classics is that the the one with that publishes all the ones with penguins on them yep um i think so because i think penguin and Penguin folded into Random House at some point. And oh, okay. So I don't think it's correct to say that Penguin is a publisher. I think they're an imprint. Anyway, none of that matters. You you kind of get the idea. Right. Well, this is published by Random House, so that's, sure. that's interesting. Yeah, well, you know. So, the, like, they, they, they could probably do that pretty easily. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think with when an edition like that comes out, I don't know how the, the money works if it's still yeah. a living author, but I think the... Authors usually consider it more of an honor to be reprinted by something like that. So, usually, one way or the right. other, it's it's not hard to make that happen. Right. And you know, if, especially if your book has been out of print, and someone comes lo- comes along wanting to uh, uh, wanting to print it. Like most authors are going to have a very hard time saying no to that. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> um. Um. Interesting. Yes. I, Was there, is there a period after the, you said the Lone Rock period? The Dead Rock. Or you said this was, or Dead Rock, sorry. Right. Um, bad with place names as I am with character names, but uh, you said this was kind of his post-Panama period? Is there right. another period or is it just pre and post? That's, that's all that I, I remember um, okay. reading about anyway, um, is the, the pre-Panama sure. and post-Panama period. Sure. Um, and he's he's the, been married a couple of times to some famous or famous adjacent women. Um, oh, okay. I can't remember all their names, but like the daughter of someone, some famous actor. 
um, or something. Okay. And, you know, so like, I don't know. He he's got connections that way and and such. But sure. I don't know anything more about him. Um, and, and like I said too, when I when I uh, announced that I picked this book, uh, how I came across it was noticing its cover in the movie. Home Alone, <laughs> that right. um, the the dad is reading this book on the plane um, while they're while they're flying, which is after reading the book itself is interesting that he's reading it on a plane. Um, sure, a little bit, maybe a little bit interesting that he's reading it on a plane. I don't think necessarily the filmmaker had any meaning behind that. <laughs> yeah, I have. Um, I did want to, and I don't know if we should do this now or later Mm. i do have an analysis of the fact that um father mcallister that's no that's that's not his anyway that um (laughs) that kevin's dad is reading that on the plane um i actually do have an analysis not from the perspective of what the film might actually mean okay from a slightly different perspective um and it may make fans of home alone mad at me oh boy um, probably not, but you never know. Uh, anyway, so I don't know if I, if we want to do that now or if we want to get a little bit into the actual book before we do that. Well, um, I, I was thinking in terms of uh, a very broad and open-ended question, um, that I could ask you, Ethan, and that could get us into some of the meat of the book too. Um, so I am, you know, I'm the host, but I'm going to, I'm going to give you those two options. You can talk about your home alone theory, or I can ask you this broad and open-ended, open-ended question. Um, and I'll let you, you choose. Go ahead and ask the question. Okay. Partly because I want to see if it's, uh, you know, if it dovetails. Well, it, it kind of leads out of this, this point that I was, um, making, not point, but there's this general discussion I was making about this being a living author who has this little bit of scholarship that, as you say, might uh, over the next decades or so start blossoming into a little bit more scholarship, um, which would, in a sense, start putting him in the category of uh, a modern classic sure. um, space, anyway. So my question to you, yeah. and I don't want to get into like uh, our our valuations of the books, our ratings uh, of the book right. or anything. So I'm not going to ask you, is this a modern classic? I'm going to ask you, what would make this a modern classic? Or what elements of this book qualify it as a modern classic? Um, I mean, I don't know if you intended this or not but to say what elements of this book qualify it as modern classic is slightly leading okay in the sense that it it assumes the conclusion that this is a modern classic right um, and and i i do intend that's to just the way it's conclusion at least for the sake of argument sure i was gonna say that's that's the way it's phrased um it could be interpreted differently if you wanted to but um i and I, I mean, this of course gets into the question of like, how do you define what a classic is? Mm-hmm. Which I'm not super comfortable with <laughs> that question. Um, partly because I think anything I have to say about it might be boring and make everyone stop listening to the podcast. Um, 
Secondly, because it's one of those questions that's like, what is art? That's really impossible to answer on sort of a definitive level. Um, But also partly because it can be self-fulfilling in sort of an unhelpful way. Oh, certainly. Because, like, one of the, like, glib answers that I'm tempted to toss off is just the idea that a classic is just something that people continue to read long after um, the the work in question has sort of... Uh, no longer exists in its original context. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, just to just to take a really obvious example, I guess, um, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, like, still gets read. It's controversial at this point as to whether it's, you know, going to continue being like a book that most high schoolers are exposed to or not. Um, but mm-hmm. even for generations it was, and it still kind of proves my point of, like, you know, the the context and the, the cultural currents and the things that Mark Twain was responding directly to um, that might have been at the forefront of his mind, a lot of those are elapsed. Like, um, you know, one of the one of the, the first banning of Huckleberry Finn, which happened within the same year as its publication, was um, led by Louisa May Alcott, the author mm-hmm. of Little Women, um, who wanted to ban it essentially for, I forget what the word she used, but it was something like obscenity. <laughs> and it wasn't like, you know, any of the particular words that get makes it controversial today. It was just for the fact that this was a sort of low-class member of society speaking as a low-class member of society might speak. <laughs> um, there are, like, some implications, actually, that uh, Huck Finn uses a black dialect. So if you assume that that's true, then there could be sort of a racist undercurrent to it. But, like, in the terminology of the day and what those folks were were looking at, like, none of it had to do with race. It just had to do with, like, language and the use of language, um, which, Mm -hmm. you know, there are racial issues buried there that we can see. But, again, um, you know, it's, it's very different from the reasons that, and even if you said, well, American literature needs this, this is groundbreaking, might be a a response at the time all that whole set of debates and set of questions has relatively very little to do with the reasons that the book kept getting read and kept getting read and and survived and like some of the reasons it did probably were good and some of them probably were you know more uh uh i don't know if i want to say bad or just vapid right like like pretty um mm-hmm. inconsequential um and that's probably true of any classic. Like some cla- some books that continue getting read for a long time, you know, get read for very bad reasons or whatever. Um, all of this is to say that, like, in a very real sense, whether Nobody's Angel is a classic um, is almost impossible to say at this point in the context of, like, the canon of literature. And I do feel Mm -hmm. like it's like, we've already talked, I was already getting this feeling before we kind of, I hadn't even thought before I made that toss off remark at the, a few minutes ago um, about this being probably the let this 81 print run being probably the last print run of this book, just Mm -hmm. at a guess. 
Um, because I do feel like this book is tipping, tilting on the edge, just based on a few things I've read online about the author and, and the book, of, like, does it fall into obscurity or does it get, like, mm. rediscovered and remembered beyond its time? Because, again, as you kind of said, not to get too into the um, uh, uh, ratings, you know, very prematurely, but, like... As a book that was first published, I guess, in, looks like 78 or 79, um, or 80? Okay. Looks like, looks like it was first published as a book in 1980, mm. um, or 81. Anyway, it feels very much like a book that was written exactly in 1980. Like, it feels very yeah. of... Not just the period that it was written, but, like, the exact year that it was written. Like, the end of the Carter era, the end of, like, um, not that there was a ton of innocence left in the 70s. Like, the Mm. 60s were kind of, by people who kind of went through the 60s, you know, the 60s were kind of the innocent time and the 70s seemed very cynical. But, like, it's almost like this book is pushing through to the new cynicism of the 80s and, and is right on the brink of that, like, Reagan world and and you know the movie wall street and all of that like feels very much like it's in the immediate future and like um the the shadow that it felt like specifically the prose of this book was resting in was that of thomas pynchon um and i believe gravity's rainbow came out in okay it came out in 73 so a few years earlier but like Gravity's Rainbow was such a, um, um, what's the word? Just, I mean, it was, it was like, the only metaphor I can think of, and forgive me anyone who knows Gravity's Rainbow because it's far too on the nose, but Gravity's Rainbow was like an atomic bomb going off in the literary world, and, um, everyone was trying to imitate Pynchon as far as prose, as far as you know, character as far as style, just it became, you know, the world after and Pynchon had a couple other books published before Gravity's Rainbow, but like and they were successful in literary circles, but Gravity's Rainbow was really and, and remains to this day really the like seminal part of his early career. Sure. Um anyway, so again, all of this to say like often books that get considered classics, especially modern classics are very much of their time in sort of a diffuse way. Like, um, there are certain books that embody the 60s, embody the 70s, embody the 80s, etc. Mm. Um, Nobody's Angel almost feels like it embodies the, like, last or first six months of the year 1980. And <laughs> I don't know that that makes it sort of uh, seminal enough Um to be a classic sure uh it it feels much more like a report from a very specific time um that said you know people people uh in say the 1850s who were like me but with the 1850s equivalent of a much broader platform were saying the exact same thing about the publication of moby dick and as i Mm -hmm. understand it took several generations 
um, of scholars to rediscover Moby Dick and like it became Moby Dick became the sort of quintessential novel it is more because of the scholarly interpretation than because of it ever having a sort of popular heyday. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think Nobody's Angel is Moby Dick, but all I'm saying is that like, you know, I'm accusing it of being a very, the first half of 1980 novel. That may be a very, the first half of 2023 take. And who <laughs> knows what will happen in the next year or, or in 10 years or whatever it is. Right. Um, and that's, you know, that's the struggle of, the question that you just asked is like you immediately have to struggle with the idea of like time versus timelessness and what Mm -hmm. those things even mean let alone how you put a pin in something um right that is is trying to sort of be both Mm -hmm. both all the time and timeless yeah and that's i think part of what makes a classic a classic for sure um embodying both of those almost perfectly and so i think you're you're hitting on how this is rooted in a time and it it does at least to an extent you know it, with the, the reflections of of pynchon um you know i i was thinking of it in terms of like a watershed as in um mm. gravity's rainbow that you know you've got the time before gravity's rainbow and then literature is changed after gravity's rainbow mm. which I, I don't think every classic needs to be that sort of watershed in order to be a classic, but the certainly great classics um, are, yeah, are and like you, that. You, you kind of end up tiering the classics, like making a tiered system mm-hmm. um, of, you know, great classics and then maybe major classics and then maybe minor classics or, right. I mean, that's, I'm just making that idea up, but th- there is that idea. There's your, seminal seminal works your uh um i'd include say gargantua and Pantagruel here um certainly your shakespeare's your don quixote's you know your like once a century books but then you have like once a half century or once a decade books and um Mm -hmm. you know I i think of something like i don't know as a random example the adventures of augie march um by saul bellow which I haven't mm. read, so it's it's not, you know, a great example on that level. But, like, <laughs> that might have been the once-a-decade book for the 1950s, for example. Um, sure. You know, it, it's not... Uh, there may have been a different book published in the 50s that would be the once-a-century book. Again, I'm just making up these these um, uh, gradations or whatever, but, but you kind of get the general point. It's like... Yeah, they're they're just that there are different tiers or levels of classics. Inevitably, any time that you start throwing around that very problematic term, classics. Right, right, and yeah, I, I'm I'm not sorry that I I brought up the problematic term, but um. <laughs> I'm not either. I'm just saying that you know, every time you bring it up, you have to admit also that you're using a problematic term, and that's yes. what we're doing. We're just grappling with that. So, what is what is your take, Michael? Do you have an answer to this, like? Would you consider this to be a a once a decade classic, a once a century classic, a once a millennia classic, or not a classic at all? Say you had to choose from, or even say a once a year classic. Like right. every year, there's probably one book that's published that's still worth reading in a hundred years, whether you know it or not. Well, i I don't know if I want to answer that question. 
Um, <laughs> that's fine. That's obviously always an option. And it, it's telling too, right? Like, yeah. if you don't have an answer on the, the you know, specific gradient I gave you, it tells me that, like, um, either it's an insufficient gradient or we just don't have enough information or something, you know, there's and, any number uh, well, of Well, it's, so. it's, it's the second one there for me that I, I feel like I need more information on it. Um, sure. And that's that's where some of this scholarship might need to come in you know as as time goes on and um which which itself i the the feeling that i have that there needs to be more scholarship on this um is telling me that the, there there is something of a classic nature to at least this book. I don't know anything about the rest of uh, Thomas McGuane's work. Um, it could be. It could be. Um, it could be a classic. It could be simply a blip that needs a little bit more scholarship, and then move, we move on. But there, there's something that I, I think needs examination. Okay, sure. That's that's a fair point. Um... And to be clear, like, you know, another another distinction that a lot of people don't kind of think about necessarily is, like, for something to have scholarship done on it doesn't mean it needs to be a classic. Right. Um, like, right. there's a lot of really interesting literature that isn't necessarily classic, and there's a lot of really interesting scholarship that mines literature that distinctly isn't a classic. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's... Uh, two examples I can think of off the top of my head. Um, one that we've talked about a ton is Gothic literature, um, like true 18th mm. century Gothic literature. The other one that just comes to mind because I was talking or thinking about it today is um, sort of boys' adventure literature from like the late 1800s and early 1900s. Um, both of those are categories that absolutely have scholars working in them right um mm-hmm. king solomon's minds is a famous uh, example from 1800s boys adventure literature right there there are people who have done phd theses on king solomon's minds it is not a good book it has a lot of buried and then some of it not very buried like british imperialist racism like pretty open racism um, you know, and, and like non-debatable racism, not something where you're like reaching something where it's like, oh, that's just right there on the surface. Mm-hmm. Um, but it had an influence on a lot of later literature, um, as in speaking of once in a century books like Tolkien's Lord of the Rings has certain things that, you know, it can it can draw back to a heritage of, of King Solomon's minds. So you can have scholars working on literature that like, they themselves would say most people probably shouldn't read, not because it's like going to damage them, but because it's just not going to be very interesting. Mm-hmm. I personally really love 18th century Gothic novels and a lot of them are straight up bad. And so I have like <laughs> the non-scholarly version of that where it's like some of my favorite books are just like these long rambling semi-coherent Gothic novels that like, I wouldn't recommend most people read unless their tastes were, like, very specific. Um, but I'm still glad that they're in print and that there is scholarship about them and, and everything because I just love them. So, right. 
all of that is just to say that, like, when you say there's stuff that needs looking into uh, in in Thomas McGuane, that can be true, and he doesn't have to be a classic at the same time. Yes. Yes. I agree. Um, and, you know, that's not to say that he he has any of the, like, really obvious, like, I'm not calling him a racist or anything like that. I'm just saying, like, mm. he could be a relatively minor work and still be worth investigating and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. So you're right. He does not have to be a classic, but there could still need to be scholarship about him that would be interesting. Um, I, I want to, I, I do want to get to your Home Alone theory, Ethan, but I want to take privilege now and um, and talk a little bit more about the nitty gritty of the book itself. Yeah, I was going to say we can get to it next episode as well. Maybe we will, yeah. If that was better. Um, now, with that, that privilege that I'm taking, I do want to ask you one question that I, I'm going to admit I don't know how long it's going to take to discuss this. Um, I think it you'd might have be little, it might be a lot. The last question you asked. <laughs> sure. Um, well, this one's more uh, in the minutiae of the book. Uh, my question okay. is, Ethan, what do we know about Patrick's father? Patrick being Patrick Fitzpatrick being the main character of the book. What do we know about his father? Um, that's a great question. Now, this feels like the part of uh, Literature 214 where I admit that I read this book pretty fast and a while ago. <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> There may be some specific details that I I uh, have missed out on. Um, I mean, the one thing that stands out that, like, as far as, you know, having read this a month ago and, and thinking back on it, um, is the fact that his father died in a plane crash. Right. Um, the only other thing I'm tempted to say, and it, if you wanted to call me out and penalize me for on a technicality... Um, you could because it's not actually technically an answer to your question. The only other thing that's obvious to me is that uh, Patrick misses the heck out of his father. That, right. Like, this is a big gaping hole in his life. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like we know that, like, I'm trying to remember. I feel like, you know, He's, like, angry at his father, but also misses him, like... Mm-hmm. Um... I don't know, which which feels very, yeah. just very, almost banal, and certainly very typical oh, sure. for... Um, I mean, maybe, like, it's one of those things that's just almost universally true as far as fathers and sons go. Um, not that every son is, like, caring and anger at their father, but certainly the dynamic is set up to encourage mm-hmm. such things, especially in, in sort of a, a patriarchal society or a legacy right. patriarchal society. Um, that said, you know, it's especially, especially true between fathers and sons where the father died or otherwise left like prematurely. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Yeah. So the, Technically, this, that's this how Patrick er- feels about his father. That's not like what we you know, know about what we know about him. But yeah, well, and th- this is you know th- this is touching on a couple of of, of thoughts that I'm I'm having about this book. That um, you know, as far as more scholarship goes, I feel like that's a subject 
that for this book in particular, and possibly for the rest of Thomas McGuane's book, uh, books could be um, uh, an exploration. Um, I, I'm yeah. thinking of the uh, the whole um, approaching Shakespeare podcast, where um, what's her name, um, Doctor Emma something. Oh yes. Um, she anyway she she it's a great podcast and she's a brilliant lecturer uh, and scholar on Shakespeare but she t- comes to every Shakespeare play and just asks one question about it and then right. talks for an hour about that question and this I think uh, or a question like it could be that sort of question um, what right. do we know about Patrick's father could turn into uh, a thesis paper um, and you know, you you talk about this being uh, a nineteen eighty quintessential thing, and there's another thing that came out in nineteen eighty that has a similar dynamic, um, or at least uh, uh, highlights that relationship of fathers and sons, and the the absence of the father, the anger at the father, and also the the fear and desire combined to uh, become the father, um, and that is the Empire Strikes Back. Um, uh, which I, I, I don't, I, I don't want to say that this is, is necessarily, uh, inspired by that because I don't think the timing works out, (laughs) but I think there's certainly something in the water, um, in terms of, uh, social, psychological things. Um, um, Professor Emma Smith, by the way, Emma Smith. Thank you. Dr. Emma Smith. Um, Dr. Emma Smith. Yes, I, I wanted to, to do her the, the proper... Um, yeah, I, I just looked up so the podcast with... The name. And it, it calls her Professor Emma Smith, I assume. I think she's mm. a doctor. I assume she is. She's okay. lecturing at Oxford. Right. Um, but anyway, so uh, I, I think that you, you hit it right by, by talking about how Patrick feels about his father, that that is something that motivates him uh, mm-hmm. in one way or another, um, motivates might be too strong a word. Um, but explains it, it certainly explains some of his character. Or, I mean, it, you know, he's a character, it's a tricky character to pull off and because it, um, violates one of the, the basic rules of storytelling, um, that is sort of drilled into you as a rule for good reason, which is t- for your character to always have a motivation his his Patrick's more like a character in search of a motivation. Mm. Um, yes, which I think is one of those things that like amateur writers think that they can do, and it takes a really talented, mm-hmm. you know, good writer to actually pull it off in a way that is that works as a as a right. piece of literature. Um, but certainly, yeah, explains some of his actions or explains some of the. Um, the reasons he has for making the choices that he makes explain some right. of his psychology. I don't know. There's something so, somewhere uh, th- there. This I, I'm going to launch into a, a little bit of a, a names with Michael here because sure. this 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 connects directly with with some of this stuff. Um, I mean, we can talk about the name of the town first of all being Dead Rock, and there's explanation of the name being uh, come, having come out of Deadlock. Um, oh. So this idea of being stuck uh, sure. is right there. Um, but talking about Patrick himself, his name is Patrick Fitzpatrick, which means Patrick, son of Patrick. Right. Um, and 
so the the whole idea of of searching for the father um, or or longing for being angry with the father it all has to come back at himself which right. psychologically speaking is like yeah, that's that's absolutely true anyway um, so he he becomes kind of his own father in that way um, and uh, I mean it, it, so the, the dynamic of of the the father motivation is really baked into his core and it's shown right. by the name here but also you talk about him searching for that motivation and that character of trying to to find that motivation um and he is in just this this muddy state of um not knowing what to look for where to go but then where the action comes in in the novel um, where he actually starts moving is in regard to one specific character and do you know that character's name ethan what do you think, based on what I told you earlier? Her and the fact that I'm always is... horrible with character names. That's right. Her name is Claire. Uh, uh, sure. Which she is clarifying to him, or at least that's what he hopes. Right. Um, so she is the embodiment of what he hopes will clarify his life. Do you Clear the, all that stuff out. Do you think there might also yeah. be a, a connection with the word clairvoyant? Yes. That maybe... Slightly on the nose, but no more so than uh, any of the rest of it so just, far. Just, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> little bit, little bit. Um, now, th- this this is also um, touching on some of the, the Catholicness in the book, uh, which is brought up explicitly. Um, I think Patrick they prefer is the an term, Irish Catholic. They prefer the term Catholicism, I think, but... Um... We don't have to listen to them. Our our man Catholicism. Our man Martin Luther didn't nail (laughs) ninety-five theses to a church door for us to have to say Catholicism when we don't want to. That's right. That's right. Well, what I what I was getting at was saying Catholicism would be, I think, implying that the novel is promoting right Catholicism, whereas I think it's. I mean, it could be, but it's it's more just the 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 nature of that as a character trait. Yes, of no, Catholicism I, I as a character trait. So the book has Catholicness. Yes, not Catholicism. The characters have under- Yeah, I fully understand and support that distinction you're making. I got it right away, but like that wasn't gonna allow me to like give you. So some what I, what I'm telling you, Ethan, is Catholicism is Gale and Peta. And Catholicness is the Hunger Games. <laughs> I follow the analogy you're making. I'm not sure it works, but that's okay. Um, uh, there is, I mean, and and I will keep this digression as brief as possible. But to say there is a tradition of Catholic writers who write characters who are very bad Catholics. Um, oh yeah. You know, one of the, the great ones being a uh, book that we've had on the show, Graham Greene, um, mm-hmm. in The End of the Affair. Not his only one where he does that, by the way. Uh, one of his best-known sure. works is called The Power and the Glory, and its uh, its main character is the last priest left in anti-clerical Mexico, um, mm. who is like a straight-up alcoholic who doesn't want to be a priest, but can't like himself away 
Um, let alone, I think Walker Percy, who has featured on the show, has some novels and stories where, mm-hmm. with very bad Catholics. Flannery O'Connor was a Catholic, and a lot of her characters are very bad Catholics. So that's just to problematize the idea that like this the this book could be Catholicism as well as Catholicness, but um, right. Could I think we'll uh, we'll let that that dog uh, sleep and and lie. Just like sure, you do yeah. on a regular basis. Got him. Oh. Yeah. I do. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but touching on that, uh, the Catholicness of the book um, is uh, the, the character of Patrick's sister, Mary, um, who is pregnant and we don't know who the father is. I mean, how on the nose can you be? Wait. Um, what is that a reference? Oh, oh, oh okay. Gotcha. I don't okay, know. Gotcha. I don't know. It took me a second um, for some reason. But. What's What's interesting, though, is uh, Patrick's, um, shall we say, messianic hopes uh, end. They, they fail and die um, with, with his sister's suicide. Um, and that's, that's a, a watershed moment here um that uh when mary kills herself um it becomes this this point after which uh patrick falls even deeper into his melancholy uh and rage um so i i think that's that's kind of the the point there with the the name mary um pointing that out that uh she she could be in that sense uh, a martyr, and um, even his his salvation. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, turns out for him he receives it kind of the opposite, and that's where previously he did uh, explicitly say, "Yeah, I call myself a Catholic. You know, I, I consider myself a Catholic." But then at uh, the funeral, he puts up a big stink and makes a makes a scene and fights with the the priest. <laughs> Right, but uh, over it all, um, tells him to shut up. Right. Um, so I mean, as as far as uh, a change in character goes, that's that's where the biggest one comes in, I think, for Patrick. Um, or uh, maybe one of the one of the biggest ones um, that where previously he would call himself a Catholic, now he's telling a priest to shut up. That's, no. that's kind of a big transitional point. I don't disagree with you, but I. Sure. Don't know that those two things are necessarily opposites. Fair. That's fair. Um, um, I, I like. I think it can still be a transitional point, but I don't know that it's necessarily... Unless there's something more explicit later that I'm, I'm uh, forgetting. But I don't know that it's necessarily him coming out of Catholicism. Um, oh, sure you know, or losing his faith or whatever. Um, I, I, I think it's a transitional yeah. point, but right. I, and yeah. I was, I, I think it's less about him becoming non-Catholic or, or stopping being a Catholic and more just the, the symbolism of that change, whatever it is. Yeah. That maybe, um, you know, he was always like, probably would self describe as like, not the nicest person, right? Or not the... Right. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I I guess not the nicest person, for lack of a, a more precise term. But um, 
maybe he, especially in self-describing as Catholic, among other things, he maybe had this idea that he was the classic cowboy, right, with uh, um, mm-hmm. sort of making his own law. Like, he does have morals, they're just not necessarily the morals of the, the sort of society around him or whatever. He makes his own, he plays by his own rules, the classic, you know, film log line or whatever. Um, and maybe this represents right. him stepping across one of his own boundaries that, like, the, mm. the transition here is him sort of violating his own uh, uh, rules that he thought were for himself were the the things you never, you know, the the sacred the sacred things that you never violate. Now here he is violating one of them in his his grief and rage or something like that. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think that's that's part part of what that what that is yeah. um uh did you have did you have a a sequence i interrupted or because uh, i have a thought but i don't want to like well go ahead with your thought i have another thought that's semi-related but i, I it can come back to it anytime. sure well this is i think semi-related but um just again talking about this the idea of the father what do we know about the father sure um do you remember, because I genuinely can't, do you remember if we know if Patrick's father fought in World War II? I don't know for sure. Um, it's possible. It's possible sure. that he did. Cause but I, I don't know if we know for sure. I think, and again, we've already, like, flirted even more heavily than we usually do with the idea of assigning theoretical um, uh, term papers or, or you know, PhD theses or whatever. But I think one obvious PhD thesis, especially if we go with your scholarly question of what do we know about Patrick's father, um, an easy one to do from sort of a sociological perspective would be to look at this as a book about a father who was either in World War II or at the very least was of the generation that would have been marked by World War II and a son who served in Vietnam. Um, right. And I mean, Patrick, I think, uh, whether it's through intention on the author's part or just faithful portrayal by the author of people like this or even himself, I don't know. Hmm. I don't want to get into the whole autobiographical question but um right right either way like patrick shows marks of ptsd but he also shows marks of sort of the generational anger that i think a lot of vietnam vets and people who were young in the vietnam era showed towards the Mm -hmm. world war ii vets and the world war ii just like sort of the um that generation their parents generation Um, which has a lot of different reasons and iterations. Um, Mm -hmm. but I think there's something there along the, along those lines. Um, I don't know what it is. Like, I don't know. I think so. Exactly. Sometimes with these, I can be like, okay, here's the thesis question I would write from and, and start researching and analyzing from. I don't quite have that clarified in my head, but like, again, I just, I just think there's something there. 
Yeah, well, it's interesting, too, because I, I was trying to find out while you were talking here, but there's a specific line that says that Patrick never fired a shot, mm, mm-hmm. um, too, which is, which, uh, oh, there it is. Uh, it's page 66. Um, uh, this is, he's he was in Germany. Um, and uh, this is just kind of a summary of, of some of his past here. Yeah. Um, Did, does he not? Does he actually I mean, serve he, in Vietnam, or does he not? I don't know if he he did. Okay. Um, so I I think he served during the time period, but yeah. um, I don't know if he was actually in Vietnam. Um, oh, here. Uh, well, let's let's. I mean, if we go back to page sixty four, um, we meet the grandfather here. The grandfather took down his daily missile from above Patrick's shelf of cookbooks and pint sized bottle of sour mash. A bottle old-timers called a Mickey. He sat down in the one comfortable ladder back the kitchen had and said, What's for dinner? Patrick thought, Is this our religion? He remembered a clever young tank gunner with a year at the university who pasted the picture of a new swami above his observation port every month. He wanted war with communism. Then exciting visits to ashrams. He wanted to find himself. At first, he wanted to smash communism. Yeah, okay. He thought Swami stood for that. And so, that like, he's talking about this guy. Um, but then it goes on um, where there's East Germany stuff. So it's it's maybe not exactly Vietnam. No, okay, but, um, yeah. Okay, so what Patrick, Patrick would have been stationed then in... Um, in West... Berlin at the time that Berlin was divided right. into West and East Berlin. Um, now, of course, right. uh, for sort of for those who uh, need a quick refresher on the history, um, during the time that mm-hmm. the USSR existed, um, Berlin is far to the eastern part of Germany. Germany is divided between East or Communist and West, um, sort of capitalist Germany. Um, Berlin, then, being such an important city, was itself divided between an East that was part of the communist regime and then a West that was not. So these guys would have been stationed essentially in the heart of enemy territory, um, essentially waiting for the war with the USSR that, like, from what I understand, generationally in the 60s and 70s and 80s, everyone thought was inevitable. We had this, like... Essentially, you know, 40, 50 years standoff with the USSR um, that uh, everyone, again, in the period, the multiple periods in question, everyone just knew for a fact that it was going to break out into a shooting war eventually. Um, The fact Mm -hmm. that it didn't, that the USSR fell before that happened, is like almost a historical anomaly and like still to some extent inexplicable um and some people would say with our current relationship with russia like it a is still the cold war and b is still happening it's just that war has changed its form so much that we don't recognize it that's a whole aside but um the point is like (laughs) i may have even with whether whether patrick was in vietnam or not i may have been a little too specific, slaving it to those specific wars, like pinning it to those wars. Hmm. Um, just, but in the sense that it's like, this is 
some of this conflict is like the World War II era dad versus the Vietnam era son. And I still think some right. of the PTSD stuff makes sense, given the historical setting that I was just kind of talking about, in the sense that, like, you know, not that, I mean, obviously Vietnam vets had all kinds of horrible traumas and so forth, but, like, mm-hmm. you can get PTSD from always expecting something bad to happen any second and it not happening oh, yeah. just as surely as you can from, you know, other forms of psychological torture. Because, like, you know, right. call it what you will, that is a fo- form of at least low-key psychological torture. Um, yep. And, you know, I think I think probably there's still a lot of, like, sociology that could be, research that could be done on the effect of that mindset on multiple generations of, of children, like Mm -hmm. some of the consequences of that, I think are still being played out to, to this day. Um, Mm -hmm. but yeah, anyway, the, uh, it's, it is more interesting almost that McGuane chooses to not have Patrick be a Vietnam vet, but be a, be a vet, you know, experiencing or, or exhibiting these kinds of symptoms nonetheless. Right. Well, and there's there's a, a an interesting point there, too. If, in fact, his father was a vet himself, uh, and I, I still haven't found anything specific to that, that point in the, in the book, necessarily, but um, it does say that he went off to test airplanes. Right. Um, so, I, you know, who knows what that means exactly. Well... Um, it's... it's almost deliberately vague, but the, there's an interesting connection there that uh, his father flies airplanes. His father's a pilot and Patrick drives tanks. Right. So they're both in the military, but like very opposite in terms of how things move and, right. <laughs> and such, um, you know, and uh, like, like you, you over... think of a plane as being this fast flying high in the air thing. And a tank is so rooted to the ground, so heavy. Um at least that's that's what I'm what comes to mind for me when I think of those. Two yeah, it's it's like opposites and overlaps because the opposites that you posited are definitely yep. real, but like, um, uh, the the kind of sort of the kind of intelligence might be very similar in the sense that you have to have a very mechanical sure. intelligence to both operate tanks and to fly planes. Um, you'd have to be right, you know, good at sort of. Uh, similar similar things as far as that goes, as far as reflexes and decision making under pressure and um, right stuff like that. So yeah, that's mm-hmm. a that's an interesting point. And also, um, uh, when so that reference to Patrick's father testing planes um, is actually a pretty specific reference because um, test pilots have a whole history and a whole. Mm. Um, oh. set of characteristics which is they're the sort of people who fly like flying planes especially prototype new planes and single pilot planes has always been a dangerous proposition um mm-hmm. there's greater danger to it than there is in staying on the ground um test pilots historically exist at the farthest end of that spectrum because they're flying what tend to be very light and therefore very unprotected as well as new concept Mm. and therefore untested planes. So all of the factors that are going to make flying a plane dangerous are 
kicked up to 11 when you're a test pilot. So um, there could be a parallel there in the sense of like mm-hmm. this also being something that isn't in war. You're not in a war zone. You weren't in Vietnam or you weren't in World War II, but you were still doing a high risk, high casualty endeavor that, again, if you're looking at it from right. PTSD perspective, could leave you with a set of, of traumas um, that would affect all aspects the rest of your life. Um, so I don't, you know, it's right. it's not a super clean-cut parallel, but it feels like there could be a parallel there as well. Yeah, no, that's, that's really interesting, and I think there's certainly... Um something interesting there it, that so that 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 line comes into a paragraph that's i think really interesting at the bottom of page 66 and i, I just want to look over this really briefly before we end this sure. this episode here um but patrick is talking about uh this uh, subliminal subliminal inclination toward another man's wife uh and it says can't help that thought patrick he turned his thoughts to what could be helped most of which consisted in learning the particulars of the ranch, which he had always assumed he would run, but which he never had run, and which, in fact, no one had ever run except his grandfather. Patrick's father had gone off to test airplanes, and the man before his grandfather, an Englishman with the papers of a clergyman too finely scripted to be doubted by the honeyockers and illiterate railroaders who settled the town, that Englishman never lifted a finger except in pursuit of Indian women and an operatic attempt at suicide in the six inches of running water from which the place was was subsequently irrigated. He did leave, however, large academic oils that he had commissioned as decoration in the dining room, depicting smallpox epidemics among the Assiniboine from the point of view of a Swiss academic painter in his early 20s, eager to get a home and tend to the cooks, uh, and so on and so forth. (laughs) Um, So we get the the generations uh, there uh, listed out, which is just, it's interesting. Yeah, and And one of the things I appreciated about this novel that... um, hasn't necessarily been true about novels of the West written by white men throughout history is that <laughs> at least acknowledgement of the the heritage of um, uh, what it's controversial but also essentially true to call ethnic cleansing of the people who were there beforehand oh, sure. um, mm-hmm. you know and going back into that history because a lot of these kinds of books, They'll either sort of, or these kinds of stories, they get in trouble for either just ignoring it altogether or acknowledging it in the most, like, specious, like, toss-off, disrespectful way possible. And um, Mm -hmm. it not being the topic of this novel, McGuane's probably smart to not focus on it too intently, but to just say that, like, yeah, there's an ugly history here and not to flinch away from it. You know, it's, it's again, I don't want to make too much of a meal of it because it's not the biggest aspect, but um, uh, his, his engagement with history is mm-hmm. definitely there. And, and one of the things about his prose that I kind of appreciate is the fact that it can take us on yeah. know, these like multi-generational tours within a, a single paragraph. Mm-hmm. So I, I do want to talk a little bit maybe about the pros uh, next yeah. time. And I've got another topic that connects back to this paragraph. 
um, but then branches out into the rest of the novel. And I also want to get to your Home Alone theory yeah. uh, at some point next time. So uh, I'm going to do something that I've never done before, and I'm going to write those things down <laughs> um, so that we can we have a checklist, at least, for some things to talk about in our next episode uh, of uh, Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch, Excellent. where, gentle listener, we will continue uh, to discuss Nobody's Angel by Thomas McGuane. Um, so... Uh, Please uh, give us your contact, uh, your your opinions about it. Reach out to us on tapestryradio.org. Go to the contact section. Put Scotch Talk in the subject line. Uh, or uh, you can find us on Twitter, at Room with Scotch. Or on Facebook, uh, request to join the Tapestry Radio Tap House. Uh, and if you do that, request to join. We will let you in uh, unless you are a failed test pilot who has died in a fiery wreck. Um, because then, obviously, it's a fake account because you can't, you can't or that. that's terrifying um, and we still don't want to let you in it's right <laughs> yeah. the only two options and they're both um, bad only two both bad yes um, also, we uh, we do homework. Uh, if you go to tapestryradio.org slash scotchcast, there's a form at the top of the page for homework submissions, and we will do that homework, but uh, we don't uh, promise to do it well. We promise to do it in a way that uh, will get you hauled off to plagiarism jail as soon as you turn it into your, your professor or your teacher, uh, and we'll laugh as it goes along that way. But we promote that. Please, please do so. Please plagiarize and, and go to jail. Um, that was the weakest uh, <laughs> pitch of that kind that I think we've ever done on this podcast. It was essentially saying, like, hey, sir, please rob this bank. The cops are right outside, and they will arrest you immediately, but I want to see it. There's no, like, subtlety. There's nothing. I mean, we're not no, a subtle podcast. None. Absolutely. So that's okay. No. No, we're not. Um... If you like this show, uh, check out the other shows on the Tapestry Radio Network, Intermission, our backstage drama podcast, Us Play Fiasco, the actual play RPG uh, fiasco podcast, Freddy Goes to a Podcast, where three grown men talk about the children's book series Freddy the Pig uh, from 100 years ago, Pokemon Rollout, the Pokemon Tabletop United actual play RPG podcast, and our newest podcast on the network, Shakespeare in the Village, uh, which is documenting uh, and exploring the uh, pre productions of Shakespeare and other theater in Albert Lee uh, and uh, other related topics. Albert Lee, Minnesota, um, for those not. Albert Lee, Minnesota, yes, I should, I should make that clear. Uh, but you don't have to have a connection to Albert Lee, Minnesota specifically. There, it talks about the the plays and Shakespeare more like in general too. Just like Shakespeare, and check out that podcast, and it's great. Uh, Ethan, where can they find you? Oh, I don't, I don't know at this point. I'm not really, all right. I'm not really on anything um, except speed. But yeah, um, yeah. Uh, I don't know. Email, email the network. You can get me that way. That's probably the best way at this point. Yeah, same goes for me. Best way to get in touch with me, if you need to, is uh, with those network contacts. Um, I am also on some of the episodes of the Shakespeare in the Village podcast, uh, so you can check out that. Uh, I want to especially promote that that new endeavor. Um, and uh, with that, uh, just remember, until next time, it's our party, and we'll cry if we have no reason to. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> Bye. Thanks, bye.